You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Got a a difficult but a really great text uh, in front of us this morning. Stains can be very stubborn things, can't they? A stain, by definition, is something that cannot be easily removed. Like, don't you hate it when you have some brand new piece of clothing? Maybe it's a shirt or a new pair of pants, or for you ladies, maybe a dress. And just within the first day or two, you accidentally spill something on it and completely ruin it. Just this last week, uh, I had my favorite pair of pants, uh, and it was time to wash them. Uh, And so I threw them in the dirty clothes and just kind of moved on with my day. Unfortunately, I had left a tube of chapstick in my pocket. Yeah, that's right. Let me just tell you, if you've never run chapstick through the dryer, I can assure you it is not a pretty sight. Right, like if you're thinking that chapstick maybe has some special secret cleaning agent in it, it does not. Right, and so when my wife called me and informed me uh, later that day what had happened, I knew in that moment, right, there's no getting that out. Right? That was a permanent stain. Uh, stains can be deceiving as well. Uh, If you've ever dealt with a really bad stain in a carpet, for instance, you know this, right? You know that while you're washing the carpet and while it's still wet, it looks like the stain is gone, right? But as that carpet dries, what happens is that you begin to see the stain return to the surface, right? In truth, it had actually never left, right? It was there the whole time. It had just been buried deep within the fibers of the carpet, so you can try and clean it over and over and over again, but the painful reality is that some stains run too deep. We've been preaching through Genesis 1 through 11 this summer, and uh, it's been a really formative and grounding time together. Uh, These chapters that form the very beginning of the scriptures reveal to us foundational truths that help us to understand God, ourselves, and the world as we know it. And one of the foundational truths that we have seen throughout our time in Genesis is that the stain of sin runs deep. Right, from Adam and Eve on, the stain of sin has affected every area of humanity and every part of our world. Sin affects our relationships, our work, our rest, our marriages and sexuality, our our struggle for identity and dignity, our families, our societies, right? Sin affects everything. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, because of sin, the entire world is now subject to decay. The stain of sin runs deep. And as we saw two weeks ago, this stain runs so deep that when God saw the increasing corruption and violence that sin had brought upon the world, he actually sent a flood to wipe out sinful humanity. He decided to, to cleanse the earth and to purge the wickedness from it. 
In many ways, God brought about a decreation of the world that he had made. He blotted out every living thing from the earth. And make no mistake, the flood was the result of the righteous judgment of a holy and good God. But it is also one of the, the saddest and most terrifying stories in the Bible. It is yet another reminder of the ruin and the destruction that sin brings in our lives. But as we saw last week, at the heart of God's judgment, we also discover his mercy. In the midst of all of the sin and wickedness, the Bible says that there was one man, Noah, and he found favor in God's eyes. And so God graciously chooses to preserve humanity and creation through Noah. He has Noah build an ark. He gathers Noah's family and a bunch of animals into the ark. They escape the flood of waters that come upon the earth, and God protects and saves them. After a year of being out at sea, uh, the waters finally subsided and the earth dried out. And God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and all your family with you, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The earth, the world itself has been recreated through baptism. And Noah and his family have been given a fresh start, a new beginning. Uh, And and that's where we're going to pick up in the story uh, today. Uh, Today we're going to see what happens when humanity gets a fresh start. Uh, If you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 9. And if you need one, uh, it's on page 6 in the Pew Bibles just in front of you. And so go ahead and open up to Genesis 9 as we take a look together at what happens next. I've tried to to picture this week Noah and his family as they are emerging from the ark. It must have been an incredible scene. The the sunlight of this new world warming their faces for the first time. All of the animals starting to stretch their legs, trying to remember what it's like to run around and roam free. What we see is that the first thing that Noah does is to, he builds an altar, right? And he makes sacrifices, burnt offerings to God, right? He was signifying that he was completely giving his life to God. And the text tells us that the aroma of Noah's sacrifice pleased God, and that God blessed Noah and established a covenant with him, promising that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And the sign of this covenant was a beautiful, shining rainbow. And so just imagine, just imagine Noah and his family standing there, just basking in the glow of the glorious splendor of this rainbow. What an amazing day that must have been. It truly was a new beginning. 
with Noah as the fountainhead. And as candidates for human fountainheads go, Noah was a great choice. We're told earlier in Genesis that Noah was a righteous man. We're told that he walked with God and found favor in the eyes of the Lord and that he was blameless in his generation. And throughout the 120 years of building the ark and enduring uh, the year-long voyage at sea, we're told that Noah did all that God commanded him. Right? Noah truly was an incredible man of faith. He was a hero. And so if ever there was hope for things to go differently the second time around, it was going to be with Noah. And, and so with that as our backdrop, let's see what happens with this fresh start. Genesis chapter nine, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah and from these people of the whole, of, of the whole earth were dispersed. All right, so if we haven't caught it up until this point, the text is making sure that we know that this is a recreation story. Right? A new humanity is being formed. The whole earth was to be populated by Noah and his family. It's a new beginning. It's a fresh start. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So much for a fresh start, right? Man, what a letdown. The text has been building and building towards this glorious new start, and what do we get? Righteous Noah passed out drunk in his tent. And before we go trying to give Noah a pass here, remember, this dude was over 600 years old, right? Like, I don't think that you get to claim ignorance when you've lived for 600 years. That excuse kind of goes out the window after at least like 300, 400 years, right? No, Noah was a, a seasoned man of the soil at this point. He knew what wine could do. He wasn't some sort of helpless victim here. Noah had brought about his own decline. When the text says that Noah lay uncovered, the tense of that verb implies that Noah had actually uncovered himself. And commentator Kent Hughes says that having uncovered himself, he therefore had covered himself with shame in disgrace. Man, come on, Noah. Come on. I've been curious this week. I wonder what Noah's mindset was as he headed into this brave new world. Right? Like, how did he conceive of the second chance that he had been given? I fear that sometimes our own idea of a fresh start is actually the opposite of what God has in mind. Right? We tend to think it means something like a do-over. Right? Like everything in the past, is, it's just erased, 
and we're starting with a, a completely clean slate. Right? We think that there is something uh, about a second chance that inherently changes everything about our reality. But as Noah tragically found out, right, the stain of sin runs deep. His blameless life had been a lone bright light in a dark and depraved world. But in this moment in the tent, sin had conquered him. And he ought to serve as a warning to us. Even righteous Noah could not make it on his own. He was terribly flawed. Now it's worth mentioning here, there is nothing wrong with wine. There's nothing wrong with wine. Jesus made wine, and presumably there's going to be wine in the new heavens and the new earth. Wine is a gift from God. But just like any gift, it can be so easily abused. And this is a really important aspect of how the Bible talks about the nature of sin. Sin is not just doing bad things. More often, it is an abuse or a perverting of a good thing. For example, food is a good gift from God. But when we try to get satisfaction from food, more so than it has to offer, it leads to to gluttony and addiction and all kinds of self-destructive habits. Sex is a good gift from God. But when we try to extract sexual pleasure in ways that are outside of God's design, it leads to immorality and perversion and devastation, not only for us but for others. We do this with money and entertainment and any number of good things. The trouble that Noah got himself into and that we often get ourselves into is that he took a good thing and he made it an ultimate thing. Despite a fresh start, what we see is that sin was alive and well in the new world. The flood did not purge the earth of wickedness. The purpose of the flood was not to have a new fresh start free from all sin. The purpose of the flood was to actively demonstrate God's judgment against sin and to show us just how deep the stain of sin goes in our own hearts. And as Noah found out, sin always has ripple effects. So let's take a look at those together. Verse 21. Noah drank of the wine and became drunk. He lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, and and I want you to see that that's actually the second time in the story uh, that it's mentioned that Ham was the father of Canaan, okay? That's a clue, right? Store that away, right? So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
Now this story, uh, it's a bit strange, isn't it? It raises a lot of questions in our minds. Questions like, what exactly is going on here? What, what exactly is, did Ham do, and, and why was it so grievous? Uh, when approaching a passage like this, uh, it's important to not get lost in the uncertainty of the details, but rather uh, to focus on, on the broader, big idea that the text is presenting. Right? And the main thing that the author of Genesis 9 wants us to see in this story is the clear contrast between the deeds of Ham and those of Shem and Japheth. Ham stood in mockery of his father. He, he, he sneered and, and, and took delight at the sight of his father, passed out, sprawled out naked in his tent, when he sees the sinful shame of his father, he does nothing to cover that shame. Instead, he exposes it as an opportunity to show contempt for his father. Noah, Noah was the one person in the world to whom God had chosen to focus his grace. Noah walked with God. Right? It's one of only two people to have that specific distinction in Scripture. Noah was the only reason that Ham had come through the judgment of the flood. Noah was his representative before God. An imperfect representative, to be sure, but his representative nonetheless. The fifth commandment would later make explicit what God was already teaching in this passage. That God desires for humanity to honor our parents. Amen, parents? Right? Not because they always deserve it, but because God has given them to us. He's given them to us to express love and tenderness toward us and to lead us in following God. They represent the loving authority of God in our lives. And just as a pastoral aside here, this is why the role that God has given to parents and to all those in positions of authority makes the abuse of that role even more damnable in God's sight. And so if you have suffered under such abuse, I want you to know that God hates that sin. He grieves with you. That kind of brokenness is the very thing for which Jesus came to bring healing. But what we see happening here with Ham is that he dishonors his father and in so doing, he is showing the very position of his heart towards God in the process. The same contempt that he had for his father is shown towards his father's God as well. In complete contrast to Ham, Shem and Japheth acted to cover their father's nakedness. Verse 23 says that they took, uh, they took a garment, right? Literally, they took the garment, uh, implying that Ham had actually taken uh, the clothes of his father and instead of covering him with it, uh, he began to parade the clothes around outside, right? Celebrating his father's failure and sin. Right? But instead of being dragged in to Ham's brokenness, Shem and Japheth honor their father 
and they cover over his shame with deep love and respect. Now, the text twice mentions that the brothers, they walked backwards, right, being careful not to look upon their father's shame. This image of them walking backwards and somehow kind of laying this garment on their father's shame without looking, it's kind of a humorous one, right? But it's also incredibly touching. And it harkens back to an earlier scene in Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they suddenly realize that they're naked and exposed. And so what does God do? God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. You see, in covering their father's nakedness, Shem and Japheth are imitating God himself. What incredible love. It's the kind of love that we all so desperately need. We all share the fear of being exposed, don't we? Like our initial reaction uh, to Noah being drunk and naked, it might be to laugh, but the truth is that the thought for all of us of having someone expose our sin and parade it around for everyone to see, it's haunting. What part of your brokenness does Satan hold up to expose you to ridicule and shame? It may be a past sinful act or an ongoing sin struggle. Maybe it's a thought life, an addiction, an unhealthy marriage. Something that no one else is aware of and so you live with the constant anxiety of being found out. We all share the fear of being exposed. We all live with shame. And the question is, is there a covering for our shame? And the sons of Noah, Ham on the one hand and Shem and Japheth on the other, they are representatives of two groups of humankind. Right, those who, like Adam and Eve, who with God's help have their nakedness covered, and those who, like Ham, make no attempt to cover their nakedness, even shamelessly exposing it. And the story goes on to tell us that these two groups have two very different trajectories. Let's take a look, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now I told you this was coming, right? But, but we should be wondering, right, why does Noah curse Canaan? Right? Ham was the one who sinned. And so why isn't he the one who was cursed? What, what, what's going on here? You know that saying, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? I think it's likely here that the same evil traits that were present in Ham were already present in his son Canaan. 
Right? And no one knew this firsthand. And so he responds by denouncing the, the, the poor uh, and awful character that had been passed down from, from father to son. But we also have to remember that the author of Genesis, Moses, is writing to a specific audience, right? He's writing to the Israelites. And for the original Israelite audience, the specific mention of Canaan here would have caught their attention, right? Because they knew full well who Canaan was. He was the ancestor of the Canaanites, the despised enemy of Israel. If you read about the Canaanites, uh, what you'll see is that they were the full embodiment of the depravity of Ham. They were the epitome of of a wicked and evil people who mocked and rejected God. The sin of Ham that we see here in Genesis 9 had escalated into full-blown debauchery with the Canaanites. I read about the Canaanite culture this week and and, uh, some of their sexual practices, and it is horrifying. Uh, They had become uh, enslaved to their sexual vices, and they practiced things like cultic prostitution, They would force young people into sexual slavery and it would often lead to child sacrifice. It is said that even uh, the surrounding pagan cultures were appalled by the Canaanites. You see, the Canaanites were a picture of what happens when God gives people over to their sin. Right? And this is the very essence of what it means to be cursed. Right? It's to have God's presence removed and to be given over to our sinful selves. Right? To walk in the way of Ham is to have no sense of your guilt and your shame before God. And the trajectory of that path is curse. It's separation from God. In stark contrast, look how Noah responds to Shem and Japheth, verse 26. Noah also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. We should notice here that that Noah actually does not directly bless Shem, right? Who, Who does he bless? The God of Shem. And he specifically uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, or or, or Lord. This phrase is frequently used in Genesis to denote an intimate, personal relationship with God, between God and man. And Shem had this personal relationship with God, which truly is the highest and greatest blessing that anyone can experience. It also tells us that Japheth will get to enjoy this blessing as well through his relationship with Shem. And and this blessing on Japheth is, is foreshadowing to us how the gospel will extend beyond the Shemites, the, the Semitic Jewish people, and it will go out to the Gentiles and even to the ends of the earth. Right, to walk in the way of Shem is to see your guilt before a holy God and with God's help to get covering for your shame. 
And, and whereas the curse is having God's presence removed, right, the blessing that comes from walking in the way of Shem is being in communion with God. It's enjoying him. In the end, there are fundamentally two ways of responding to sin, and they have two very different trajectories. This strange story at the end of Noah's life, it's ultimately not about Noah's drunkenness. This is not a moral warning about the dangers of drinking too much. It's not fundamentally a a, a caution against letting your guard down after a moment of of great triumph or or, or becoming too relaxed in your old age. Nor is this uh, ultimately an ethical argument for the importance of honoring your parents. The point of this story is to teach us uh, that there is a line that divides all of humanity into two groups. Right? There are those who are blessed and that their sins have been covered and there are those that are cursed because in their self-righteousness their sins lay uncovered. Right? So how do we get in on the blessing? As we read this story, it should fill us with a sense of longing. It makes us aware of our own need for someone to to cover over our nakedness and our sin. We all feel it. Our shame runs so deep. Is there a covering for our shame? In Zechariah 3, the prophet sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is also standing uh, at his right hand, and and Satan is there to accuse Joshua, and he had every reason to accuse him. To Joshua's deep shame, he stood before the Lord, not naked, but rather clothed in filthy garments, Joshua, he doesn't speak a word because he feels such deep shame for being in the presence of a holy God with such ugliness clinging to him. Satan isn't making anything up about Joshua. He truly is unclean. But the Lord speaks and says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Oh, Satan, the Lord who has chosen his people rebuke you. Right At this point, Joshua's filthy garments are commanded to be removed, and so now Joshua is standing naked and exposed before the Lord. Imagine that. Imagine the anxiety, the shame, the fear of being exposed for who he really was. Right, Satan had accused him, and he had no defense for himself. But the Lord speaks a word of blessing over Joshua. He says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure garments. 
in the gospel, Jesus does the same for us. Rather than let us be cursed forever as servants of sin, Jesus takes the curse upon himself, becoming a servant and submitting himself even to the point of death on a cross. Right? On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked. He was beaten. He suffered public humiliation that should have been ours so that Jesus, the foremost descendant of Shem, could take us wandering sons of Japheth into his tent, into the covenant, into the family of God. He took our shame. He took our dishonor and covered it with his blood, becoming our very sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. The good news of the gospel is that there is covering for our shame. There's covering for our shame. And it comes to us by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.